Coming up on Stu Does America, the Washington Post's knee-jerk rebuttal of a comment from President Trump leads to a hilarious, if predictable, self-own. And Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review joins us to discuss COVID-19 and the border, as well as decisions passed down from the Supreme Court today. You've all been doing your part to help us defeat the evil YouTube algorithm robots. Keep it up with the subscriptions, the likes, the comments, all that good stuff. We appreciate it. Let me ask you right now, just click the like button. You're watching on YouTube. Just click it right now. Just do it. It's awesome. It's going to feel good to you and to me. We're also getting great feedback on the podcast version of the show. So don't slow down with the ratings and reviews. Five stars. It's great. Whatever. You know the drill. And speaking of great things, whatever, have you heard about this network, Blaze TV? I've heard of it. I think you'd really enjoy it. Sign up now at blazetv.com slash stew and use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and we'll take 10 bucks off the price. Texas COVID numbers aren't looking so great at the moment, but until they jam Chris Cuomo's oversized prop Q-tip into my head to check, I will be here to remind you that his brother, Andrew, is awful. Dot com. Stu does America. When it comes to Donald Trump and the media, the issue isn't the bias, it's the obsession. There's always been a left-wing bias in the media. But the reason the Trump era feels different is because it is. We've changed from a left-leaning media to a group of visceral activists who will do anything to bring this guy down. Of course, Trump doesn't make it difficult on them sometimes. But the bizarre lengths they will go to are amazing. Take the Washington Post, who decided to fact check a frequent claim from Donald Trump. Trump keeps claiming that the most dangerous cities in America are all run by Democrats. They aren't. Boom. A mic drop right like that. You know what I'm saying? Trump says they are, but they aren't in your face, Don. Oh, yeah. So how do they come to this conclusion? Well, first, it's important to understand the background behind the claim. What does Trump mean by most dangerous? What metric is he looking at? The Washington Post did some digging and came up with an answer. Um, Well, it's not the answer, but at least it is an an answer. Quote, it's not clear how Trump is defining most dangerous in this context. Hmm. Can you really really call someone a liar when you yourself don't even know what the person is talking about? It's a little difficult, right? Eventually, Washington, uh, the Washington Post landed on a pretty fair metric, I would say. Quote, the most recent data to that effect is from the FBI's Uniform Crime Report covering the first half of 2019. The cities with the most violent crimes are many of the most populous cities in the country, as you might expect. So instead of just total crimes that just reflect the size of a city, they focused on the crime rate. Fair enough. I'm fine with that. The Post then executes one of the greatest cell phones in the history of modern journalism, They show, for some reason, this chart with a party ID of each mayor. Let me go through the list for you. Memphis, Tennessee, St. Louis, uh, Detroit, Baltimore, Springfield, Missouri, Arkansas, uh, excuse me, Little Rock, Stockton, Cleveland, San Bernardino, uh, Oakland, New Orleans, Albuquerque, South Bend, Milwaukee, Rockford, Illinois, Lansing, Michigan, Um, Let's see. North Las Vegas, Wichita, Chattanooga and Houston. All right. Let's stop for a second and let all this sink in. In an attempt to prove Donald Trump a liar for saying that all 20 of the most dangerous cities are run by Democrats, you have produced a chart that shows that 19 of the top 20 are run by Democrats. 
And the last one is run by an independent. It's like they wrote this article and then handed the chart design over to their newest employee in the art department, Kellyanne Conway. I guess technically speaking, Trump was mistaken. Only 95% of the most dangerous cities were run by Democrats, not 100%. And the other 5% was independent. What a lying bastard. It's like calling someone a liar for saying all Ben Affleck movies are terrible and then saying, no, Argo was good. Okay, yeah, you know, there's Argo, but there's also Batman v Superman and Surviving Christmas and Daredevil and Pearl Harbor and Reindeer Games and freaking Gigli. Ugh. And let's not forget the actual Ben Affleck directorial debut entitled... I killed my lesbian wife, hung her on a meat hook, and now I have a three-picture deal at Disney. That is a real movie that Ben Affleck directed. It's a real thing. And you might think, no, that can't be a real thing. Well, let me give you a feel for the quality of the dialogue. You don't know how important this part is to me. I am going to live this part. You'll see. Okay, well, we're counting on it. We're counting on it. Let me ask you something. Do you, do you know much about migrant trash pickers? It's an interesting question. Do you know anything about migrant trash pickers? I'm not sure that I do. I couldn't play that role. Anyway, uh, wow, what a film. Where were we? Uh, yes, okay, 19 of the 20 most dangerous cities are run by Democrats. The Washington Post, in all of its brilliance, is able to see the line of attack that all you right-wing haters are going to try. So they beat you to the punch. Quote, Trump would no doubt shrug, uh, shrug at that detail, decrying fake news at the revelation that he was, his assertion was only slightly wrong. And in fairness, it actually doesn't matter that four of the 32 cities listed above have non-democratic mayors because it doesn't really matter that the other mayors are Democrats. <laughs> what? That is one of the most incoherent things ever written. And that's coming from a guy who recently watched I Killed a Lesbian Wife, Hung Around a Meat Hook, and now a three-picture deal at Disney, directed by Ben Affleck. I love you. How much do you love me? More than anything, Carlos. Who? Carlos. Yes, 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 I'm sorry. Maria. What would you say if I um, wanted to cancel our cable? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of never wanting to watch any visuals at all. I might cancel my cable as well. This is, uh, of course, not to say that there are some really good points mixed in in the Washington Post analysis. There are. Quote, it may be the case that cities with more crime and more. <laughs> all I want to do is watch this movie now. I can't even focus on what I'm doing. It may be the case that cities with more crime are more likely to have Democratic leaders. Such a comparison, though, is fraught, relying on the validity of reported crime data. Such an existential argument from the Washington Post there. It's like something Matthew McConaughey would say in Dazed and Confused. Yeah, man, like, it's true. If you rely on the validity of the reported crime data, you can see how this happens, of course. Did you see here how Donald Trump say all these uh, Democratic cities are dangerous? Oh, there's no way that's true. I'm going to write it up. And once you get all the way down that road and you realize you're trying to give the president a pants on fire rating because only 19 of the 20 are Democrats, it's just time to stop. Click delete on the post. Take a nap. It's okay.
Look, I don't mean to make this a critique on the media. I don't even mean to make it a critique on Ben Affleck. But I do mean to make it a critique on Democrats. Democrats have been running the most disastrous cities in America, mostly into the ground, for far too long. How can this continue? A million years ago now, I worked on a book creatively titled An Inconvenient Book, the first big-time bestseller from an author named Glenn Beck. Uh, in it, here you go. In it, uh, I did help do an analysis, and it's on, if you have the book at home, and the, the, at least the, uh, the hardcover, page 257. I helped do an analysis of cities with the worst poverty rates in America. The results? Republicans have run the cities with the worst poverty problems in America only 8% of the time since 1965. 8% of the time since 1965. I looked at it again. Since that list was written 15 years ago, it's actually been more Democratic than ever. Now Republicans have only run those cities 5% of the time in the last 15 years. You guys have been trying this for more than half a century. You can certainly argue all sorts of different reasons for the cause for these cities turning ugly. But Democrats are incapable of making the situation better. This is just science fact. It's the truth. It's real, and there is nothing you can do about that history. Sort of like the movie, I killed my lesbian wife, hung her on a meat hook, and now I have a three-picture de deal at Disney, directed by Ben Affleck. By the way, spoiler alert, but this is how the movie ends. A woman's worth. Yeah. She's great. We've got a winner here. Tricky, tricky, tricky. Brilliant. The man's a f genius. <laughs> I intentionally left the first credit directed by Ben Affleck on to make sure you understood I was not lying. That was actually directed by Ben Affleck. And by that, I mean the movie I Killed My Lesbian Wife, Hung Her on a Meat Hook, and now I have a three-picture deal at Disney, directed by Ben Affleck. Now, sure, some will say, hey, Democrats have shown no ability to exceed, of course, but neither have Republicans. Well, Republicans do run a bunch of smaller cities with pretty good results. But the biggest city in America with a Republican mayor is San Diego. How dangerous is that city? I will leave you with this headline. San Diego crime rate drops 1.3% in 2019, the lowest among nation's 10 largest cities. Who does America? So why are you going to buy gold? I mean, do I really have to convince you at this moment that uh, you need a safe haven investment in times of turmoil? The times of turmoil are here America is in the midst of a national crisis. We have huge increases in our national debt. Wait till we, we're going to talk to uh, Daniel Horowitz. I want to ask him about some of these numbers later on in the program. This is uh, our spending situation is totally out of control. It's more important than ever to prepare and protect your financial future. Gold is up, I think, 35% in the last year or so. Uh, market indicators point toward a continued growth. I don't know what the markets are going to do. Markets are, if, if I knew, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd just be, I'd just be investing all the time, and I'd be a trillionaire. But I'm not. I will say, though, uh, gold gives you a unique uh, opportunity to protect yourself against the craziness that we do know is coming our way. Nationwide is a trusted source for precious metals with a, uh, a 4.6 star rating on Trustpilot. Uh, Nationwide provides excellent customer service and fast delivery. 
Right now, Nationwide Coin and Bullion Reserve has a, an exceptional offer. for the, This is for new customers only. While supplies last, you can get a one-ounce $50 Gold Eagle coin at cost for just $1,700. Uh, weight and purity are backed by the U.S. government. This is a great opportunity to safeguard your future. So give them a call. Nationwide is 800-489-3838. That's 800-489-3838. And mention that you heard uh, about them on this, you know, this little silly little show that you take in every day. The uh, Stu Does America Experience thingy. You can just tell them that. Uh, it's Nationwide Coin, 800-489-3838. 800-489-3838 for Nationwide. The Supreme Court has had a busy June, which is the sort of thing you say when all sports have been canceled for four months. Today, the Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four to strike down a Louisiana law that would restrict abortions in the state. I thought Trump's new evil conservative slanted justices were going to cancel abortions for good and turn America in the hand to handmaid's tale. What happened to that? I mean, that wasn't even a joke. Remember those protesters? They dressed up like characters with the stupid robes. Do you remember that part of our history? I unfortunately do. So far, it doesn't look like that's going to happen, though. Um, but I'm going to need some expert advice to confirm this. Daniel Horowitz is a senior editor at Conservative Review and the host of the CR podcast and a policy analyst. Daniel, thanks for coming on the program, man. I appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you on this long day. <laughs> it's been a long one, but an interesting one. Um, let me uh, start by paraphrasing uh, my friend Stephen Crowder. Uh, John Roberts is terrible. Changed my mind. Um, well, if John Roberts were the problem, we'd have four good justices. But notice how we're always one justice away from a majority. Mm. It's kind of like drinking coffee with a fork. You get a little <laughs> bit and you lose more on the other side of it. Uh, the answer is we really have one true, uh, consistent justice. Um, there is a four to one liberal plurality on the court. And that's Justice Thomas is the only real reliable conservative on every issue, as liberal as the liberals are. And then you have one, 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 one. And mm. in each one, they, they change on you. Roberts, obviously, is the most common. But the reality is, you look at the dissent in today's case, and once again, Thomas is the only one who categorically says Roe is a fiction, and he would overturn it. The other ones, I mean, even after years on the court with some of them, we still don't know where they stand. And what we learned today is, they won't even overturn the expansion of Rowan Casey from recent years that there's such a strong right to an abortion that doctors have the ability and the right to perform them even without any basic health care regulations that we would implement for anything else. Mm. So the reality is the courts are a one way street and a dead end for conservatives. Once the liberals breach a 200 year precedent, which they have no problem doing, then the Republican judges view that as precedent. And, well, it can only grow in one direction, just like a ratchet. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because that is a, basically what happened with Roberts, except not in 200 years, just in a couple of years. So he he uh, was on the other side of a very similar ruling not that long ago. And then here seems to take the side of the court against himself, which is something that a liberal would never have to worry about in a thousand years. But here we are trying to I mean, I've, I, I can't I could not have made up a more ridiculous um, uh, example of how the court acts than this. I mean, he's literally disagreeing with his own recent opinions. And what's funny is his rationale, again, is that we have to adhere to precedent. 
But the problem is that the original breach in the Constitution violated precedent. So, for example, in the Casey abortion case in 1990, the court said, look, there's a right for a woman to have an abortion, but states are free to regulate um, the healthcare procedures of the clinic of the doctors. But then they say, well, we lied. 15 years later, they'll come in and, and, and breach that as well. So Roberts had no problem doing that. And the reality is Roberts has done this all along. He did this on gay marriage where he was in the dissent. But then in subsequent cases, he now indulges an expansion of it, even though, by the way, that was uh, overturning Baker v. Nelson, a nine to zero decision against gay marriage mandated on the states in 1972. Again, it's a one way street. And frankly, Kavanaugh, if you look at some of his writings, he hems and haws and has very technical grounds for why he didn't side with the majority. But even if we were to get another Clarence Thomas, which I don't think they exist in the legal circles, I really don't know if he would then turn out to be the next John Roberts. Mm, it's, it's really frustrating. One of the things I talked to uh, friends of mine when we get into uh, the wonderful party conversation of abortion, um, I, I bring up the you know, Roe versus Wade is for conservatives is seen as this terrible thing, which, of course, it is. Uh, it was an awful, awful ruling and terrible, terrible law. That being said, if we were to go back to that, it's a massive move to the right from where we currently are. There is a an idea that Roe versus Wade is some high standard. Roe versus Wade is like is so far is so much more conservative than where we are now. It's been expanded and expanded and expanded. How did that happen, Daniel? Exactly. So this is the one way ratchet. Um, what they do is they create a phantom right. This is not who we are. Um, illegal immigrants have certain rights. Uh, there's a cruel and unusual punishment dictate against the death penalty for minors or the death penalty for certain things. And then they'll grow that and grow that and grow that. It's all one way, one direction. And here's the trick. Here's the trick, Stu. It's not just the Supreme Court. How do you think these cases get teed up for the Supreme Court? Mm. That requires lower court justices who are willing to nakedly violate precedent. So here's the thing. If you're a conservative lower court judge in Texas on the Fifth Circuit, you might think Roe is garbage, but you will never uh, butt up against it. You're just not going to do that. Um, you're going to rule with Supreme Court precedent. Whereas the lower courts, what they've been doing is they lead the Supreme Court liberals by saying, hey, you know, states have to recognize gay marriage when when the Supreme Court said 1972 nine to zero opinion. No. And then once they indulge that for several years, it becomes mainstream mm -hmm. and that chips away at people like Roberts and Gorsuch. We saw this with the codifying of transgenderism into Title seven of the Civil Rights Act. I don't think Gorsuch would have ever done that on his own volition. But the lower courts have been doing that for several years and it became mainstream. Mm. Um, so I am at the, the point and I, I think you're at the same point where there's no chance a court even that even mildly re, um, uh, looks like the one we have now is overturning Roe versus Wade. It's a total pipe dream. It's ridiculous. It's just a scare tactic from the left at this point. Um, but when you look at the, f the, the five justices you, that are out of the sort of liberal four, um, how do you rank them? We know, Thomas, you'd rank at number one, the best understanding, the most consistent. Would you have Alito, two? Would you have Gorsuch, two? How would you rank those next five? OK, that, that, that's really tough. Um, 
Roberts is obviously at the bottom of the GOP appointees. Let's start from that direction. Mm-hmm. Kavanaugh, generally speaking, is above him. Um, he is the closest to him. We have seen from his uh, concurrences and even dissents sometimes that he's very much of that mind that he doesn't want to um, shake the tree beyond what the court has already done, which is pretty terrible. Um, Gorsuch and Alito are complicated. Gorsuch could be pretty bold when he's with us and join with Thomas. But then, you know, he has this belief in these phantom rights, like we saw with the transgenderism. We saw with an immigration case where for the first time ever he invalidated a criminal alien statute, um, giving this due process right uh, for illegals to avoid deportation after certain convictions or I mean legal immigrants, but they were criminal aliens. So I would say in general, Alito is probably on net from a conservative standpoint. Um, bolder than Gorsuch. Um, and remember, unlike wine, they get worse with time. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the lesson. So, I mean, we saw this with Roberts. I mean, Roberts was ever great, hmm. but I mean, he's gotten full suitor territory. I mean, you give some of these dudes more time, forget it. Thomas is the only one who has, you know, gotten better. He's like, you guys are crazy. Hmm. I don't know what you're doing. Whereas the other guys, it's almost like the Overton window shifts with them. Yeah. That as the cases that come before the court are crazier, they start indulging them. I mean, just this year, the court created a right for homeless people to occupy a city. Boise, Idaho was uh, prevented from clearing out uh, encampments. Um, there was a right created for uh, a child molester sitting in the Idaho uh, federal pr- uh, state prison to access a taxpayer-funded castration operation. I mean, forget about overturning Roe v. Wade. Stu, I take a conservative court that goes one term without creating new BS rights. <laughs> this, is, this is a sad state of affairs. Um, so we do have, unfortunately, there are still more <laughs> rulings coming out uh, here in the next uh, few weeks. Um, what does the schedule look like? What are the big ones that we have to look forward to coming up? You, you know, I um, I do not see any really big ones. I think for the most part, we got we got the big ones the last couple of weeks. So that's the good news. There is another criminal alien case. Um, it, it gets complicated, but there's 50 million different ways to ensure that they get another bite at the apple to prevent deportation. Mm-hmm. And typically every fifth one, the court seems to bite at and creates a new right. To, to litigate against them, which makes it even harder um, for ICE to to deport people. So I think that's it's, it's called Espinosa. It's another case. Probably we're going to see that out tomorrow. Uh, but but I think more broadly speaking, Stu, is what you don't see at the courts. It's called the shadow docket. So you have the Ninth Circuit every day preventing sane policies from prevailing, um, mandating insane rights. And every day they go unchecked by this court. And what's funny is if you would have, like we said, hypothetically, a conservative lower court judge saying, you know what, Roe is garbage. I'm I'm done with this. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would even at her age would get off the bench and travel down there and strangle the guy personally. (laughs) Whereas when you have the other way around where you have the Ninth Circuit and other circuits creating radical, radical rights, um, you know, there, there's uh, Eighth Amendment violation for cruel and unusual punishment for not castrating someone. I'm not kidding you in, in, in prison. 
they, they let it stand and, and they let it go by for years. Alito made a very important point about what's going on. See, the game they play is this. They allow the lower courts to screw with Trump's agenda until his term is essentially over. And then they say, you know what? Well, the court was fundamentally wrong that there's a constitutional right. But I think you didn't follow the APA, the procedural way of doing it. So go back and do it again when there's no longer any time to do it. <laughs> That's what they did with the census. That's what he noted they did with DACA. And my fear is, as the months go on, we're going to continue to see more of this shadow banning of Trump at the Supreme Court. Mm, it's scary stuff. Um, if you can hang out for a couple more minutes, Daniel, I want, I want to go. You brought up the border. I want to go over some of this, the, sure. the, the the dangers that are going on uh, with our border right now. Daniel Horowitz is with us back in a minute. We are back with Daniel Horowitz, senior editor at Conservative Review. Uh, Daniel, you know, I, I've been watching the media and here they are talking about all these red states and how evil these red states are. They're opening up their economies, you know, they're just making every, you know, don't worry about those protests where we're really worried about all those uh, those barber shops uh, uh, opening up. And as I'm watching this and I've been railing about this for a while, I think you're the only other person I've seen talk about this at all, which is we have a country uh, below right to our south that has a positive test rate between 40 and 60 percent that has is only tested at the rate of one thirtieth that we've tested. And yet they still have three times the death rate uh, of the United States. Mexico did basically nothing early on. This is raging out of control with the coronavirus situation there. And now our southern states right around this border all seem to be having serious upticks. This seems to be a pretty simple narrative, but I don't think anybody's picking it up. How is that possible? And the last time I checked, California was a blue state and and they're part of this trend. Look, here here's the reality. There's two things going on. There's the second wave. Let's just call it a second mm-hmm. wave of the American epidemiological curve. We had the serious stuff in March and April. What we're seeing now broadly across the country is not just in the South, but in all the states that didn't really have much to begin with. Right. So you don't have this de facto herd immunity that you have in a place like New York. You're finding lots of cases, but they're um, qualitatively milder and also targeting younger people. And there's a lot of evidence, by the way, that was spread by the protest because the timing is a one to three week window. A lot of these states reopened six to eight weeks ago, so it makes no sense. Um, that it was then, right. but that's a different story. Mm-hmm. But what you are finding, the one place where you are finding serious cases, acute uh, respiratory distress syndrome, where you're finding, according to Reuters, they were taking them from the border unconscious. That is the, the border counties. It's, it's unmistakable. You are finding an increase in deaths and serious cases. Now, I want to make it very clear. This is not a rip on Mexico. Everyone is getting the virus. It's a matter of timing. Mexico didn't get it to about until about May. That's when it took off. That's when we started seeing. You could even look Washington Post, Reuters, uh, Kaiser Health had had articles on this. They were being taken from the border, transported to our hospitals. The hospitals are horrible there. Uh, your listeners could Google uh, Ba, California, Matamoros, Tamaulipas, um, Reynosa, and hospitals. The nurses are striking. It's bad there. I can't blame people for wanting to come here. But remember, this is Mexico's first serious wave. 
the reason we're seeing that at the border now is because we re-imported Mexico's epidemiological curve that began in May after our own subsided. So we kind of renewed it. Now, I'm hoping there wasn't much of a broader spread and it will just be those individuals that were taken to the hospital who died. But the reality is this, while Americans are locked down, actually precisely because of why Americans are locked down, they're locked down in Mission, Texas. They have a curfew. You can't travel outside your home at night as an American in Mission, Texas. But if you're from Mexico, you could come and say, dude, I, I need COVID treatment. And we're like, hey, come in. We have a travel ban at, at the border so you don't spread COVID. Except if you say you have COVID, <laughs> then, then you're brought in. And look, if, if you believe it's our responsibility to care for Mexico, even when we're in such dire straits, here's the deal. We have tons of field hospitals and support um, resources that we never used. Deploy them to the border, but God, don't bring them into the interior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a crazy idea. And we're seeing, you know, between Mexico, Ecuador had a, a rough time go with it. Obviously, Brazil is probably the worst place in the entire world right now. Um, we have a situation where if you think about uh, the uh, when you're just talking about economics, right? Over the years, when there's been trouble with crime and economics in Mexico, we've had rushes to the border. Um, we've seen that happen a couple of times over the past six or eight years. Um, if you have a situation with a terrible medical system, a, a virus that's raging out of control, we have a real possibility. We're only seeing, I think, the very early parts of this that people will decide, hey, where the hell can I go where they're going to spend multiple trillions of dollars and have all the best technology to try to fix this? I know that country to our north. And we do not seem at all prepared to deal with a large rush to the border right now. Are, are we prepared? Do I have that wrong? No, no, we're not. We never thought about that. And then, look, you have green card holders. You have dual citizens. And generally speaking, they have a right to come in. But if you're telling me this is bad enough that Americans have to be locked down, for example, they were saying a lot of them work back and forth. And, and there's tremendous cross-border commerce. I get that. But if we're saying this is bad enough, you have to end commerce within the states, <laughs> then, well, yeah, we're going to shut that border. And, and the reality of what we've learned from the virus is a couple of things. Number one is human mitigation, the ability of humans to mitigate this once you let it in your country is very limited. It really is very limited. But one of the things you can do is, you know, it runs its course and it, you'll be fine. But if you reintroduce another country's curve, then, yeah, I mean, you could get it again, potentially. And that's a serious problem. Qualitatively, the ones that are coming here. This is what's concerning are the ones with the most serious illness. Mm. And that's understandable. I get why they'd want to come. But what studies have shown is that the threat of transmission grows commensurate to the severity of the virus. If you're totally asymptomatic, there's really questions how much you could transmit. But certainly, if you are very symptomatic, you are going to be very contagious. And there's now um, reports that the border hospitals got flooded, Yuma, Imperial County, they don't have that much space. So they were flown to Houston, Phoenix, San Diego for sure. Um, let me just give you one stat. Imperial County that's right on the border across from Mexicali, which had a tremendous amount of problems. And it is 154th the size of LA County, probably 1 500th the population density. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So based on everything we know about the way the virus works, it should be much better off than L.A. County. Yet it has two and a half times the hospitalization rate. It's a dead giveaway. <laughs> I mean, we know exactly where this is coming from. Yet there is still no effort to shut it off or to at least build a field hospital to deal with them separately and at least be transparent with the public. Like, I would love to know this question, Stu. How many ICU beds in those border states are from recent arrivals in Mexico? Because we do have data from Kaiser Health in one uh, uh, hospital in Imperial County where it was 60%. Jeez, 60%. This is amazing. Um, Okay, so let me ask a more broader question here about the border. Uh, We all know that there are problems in our system. Democrats in particular don't want to do anything on the border. And a lot of Republicans, far too many Republicans as well, want to basically avoid this problem. Um, And and so we know the, the issues here. But as we approach the 2020 election, how do you rank, how do you rate Trump's performance as it comes to the border? We know he's talked a big game. He's done some things. Has he done enough? Has he exhausted his options? How do you see that? Man, you're you're really putting me on the spot there. (laughs) I I think the problem is Trump kind of holds out the ball as if he's Tom Brady going to make a big play. Now, the other side's going to have a response. If you're Tom Brady, we're going to blitz you with everything we have. Mm -hmm. So if you then don't make the play, you're actually going to be worse off and you're going to get sacked and, and lose 30 yards. And I think what you're seeing here to expand on that analogy is that Trump legitimately wanted to do something about about the situation. He still does. But the other side gets a vote or sometimes they don't get a vote and they do it illegally. And their two answers were the courts and sanctuary states. Mm-hmm. And they basically just rebelled. I mean, the, the, the lower court judges just engaged in resistance and the sanctuary states just just. I mean, this is where 80 percent of them live. There's no enforcement. Interior enforcement is below Obama's second term level. Forget about the first term where it was more robust. So the outcome is bad. I mean, the outcome is bad. Now, we could talk about, oh, the border crisis was shut down. But we had the worst border crisis ever under his watch. And it took 18 months to get it shut down. (laughs) I mean, I don't blame him for the courts and the states doing this on his watch. But you got to have a response to that. I was pushing for two years when they had trifecta control to really push um, measures in the budget bill to fully defund sanctuaries to finally push a Lincoln approach, which gets back to our first conversation with the courts, that you got to assert separation of powers and say, look, I mean, you cannot grant visas. That is not a, um, a judicial function. That's an executive function. This is the problem. I mean, at some point, conservatives need to focus on outcomes and results. Because I'm just telling you on net for every step forward we take, and there are some good minor in the weeds policies that have gotten done on the interior enforcement side. We take two steps back on the fundamentals where where courts are basically saying you can't arrest them at police stations. You can't arrest them at courthouses. You basically can't arrest them anywhere. Mm. I, I really appreciate you taking all this time. I have like nine million questions and I want to bring up one last topic here because this is another thing you've covered uh, you know, really, really well over the years. The what, Trump always talked a good game on the border and the results have been very mixed, though I think he's attempted to do those things. He's never talked a good game about spending 
<laughs> it's never been even anything that he really ran on. It was not a priority of, of a Donald Trump administration. And he was pretty upfront with that. We are now at a point, though, that this has gone so out of control. And when you add on the recent spending, you know, I mean, Brian Riedel said it's, you know, it's going to be at least eight trillion dollars. This is going to cost us when it comes to uh, coronavirus response. The previous eight trillion dollars when we didn't have a crisis, uh, we are we are at levels of spending that I, I they're incomprehensible to me. Do we have any chance of turning this around or is it just time to give up and just you know, let let, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez go nuts and we'll just all have a party until this thing crashes and burns? I'm at a point where I think we should demand that the government writes every American a hundred thousand dollar check. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, if we're going to say that there is no downside to what we're doing and they could just print an unlimited amount of money. So, you know, why end there? Why not send every American a hundred thousand dollar check so they're good for the entire year? You know, and that way we could have lockdown for a full year, which is seems to be what they want. Mm. Here's the reality. As you said, what we have now in terms of spending makes Obama's stimulus era appear to be like Barry Goldwater. Yeah. And that was when we had a serious um, recession. Now, now we do again, but this was before. We had, a, we had three years of prosperity, and, and we, we were still doing this even before. Now, this blew it out. Um, see, I would disagree a little bit with, with what Trump promised. Trump was, said he was never going to go after Social Security and Medicare, but he absolutely was open to welfare reform. Republicans at their annual retreat promised that their second year of trifecta control, they were going to do that. The first year, they mm-hmm. did those vacuous tax cuts. The second year, they were going to do welfare reform. Trump was 100% open to it. In fact, um, his uh, HHS under Trump has given waivers to states to implement work requirements. Now, the courts have messed with that, of course, um, as they do everything. But he was open to that. But the reality is Trump is not going to be more religious about it than, than the conservative movement. And we spent three years distracted you know, with a lot of razzle-dazzle issues and every budget battle that we had where Trump would introduce, his OMB director would introduce a budget that was pretty decent. They went and signed a bill that increased spending on every single thing he promised to cut. I mean, you look at his budgets, it's not true that he didn't promise some degree of fiscal conservatism. He did. Mm-hmm. But you know how Trump is. He'll he'll go where it is. He'll if, if we pressure him, he'll be happy to go in that direction. But if McConnell and McCarthy say this is what we're doing, he'll sign that too. He'll sign whatever is put on his desk. I don't understand the psychology behind it, but I think we've seen enough uh, evidence that that's what he does. And, you know, it's it just there, there's schizophrenic uh, directions in the administration. You got a uh, Russ vote at OMB who's a good guy. But you got Mnuchin, who's the Treasury Secretary, who could easily fit in in a, in a Biden administration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this also, Stu, and this applies to other issues, is personnel, is personnel. And, you know, when you're talking about people like Jared and um, Mnuchin, dude, I mean, these guys were never going to be conservative. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 uh, it's a it's a crazy dynamic. And there's so much there. Honestly, we could keep going forever, but we're out of time. Uh, Daniel Horowitz, if you're not listening to Conservative Review, the podcast, yep. what, you're nuts. you got to be doing it. Uh, senior editor at Conservative Review, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. And I really appreciate you taking the time and, and going through, which is, I mean, uh, end of society sort of, sort of issues we're facing right now. Uh, thanks for making them understandable, Daniel. Take care. Looking forward to coming back. All right. Thanks. Back in a second. 
The NBA says they'll let players put social justice causes on their jerseys because, you know, they just want the athletes to speak their minds. Totally doesn't have anything to do with caving to a leftist mob or anything like that. No, no, they just care. That's what they want us to believe. The NBA cares. They do care about money, uh, which is fine. I don't mind caring about money. But I do know this because no one, absolutely no one, will roll onto that court next month with a free Hong Kong on their jersey. Some scrub hopping on the court and having a abortion equals murder where his name's supposed to be. They're going to get yanked from that game faster than I did in high school for shooting 40 foot threes. Which, by the way, I was way ahead of my time. Uh, Steph Curry, you know that? <laughs> he was still in diapers when I was pushing the boundaries of the game and expanding the arc. You're welcome, Steph. Okay? But I digress. The NBA does not care. It's not NBA cares. It's NBA scared. They're scared to death of the leftist mob who they think, I don't know, is going to tweet them to death or something. I don't know why massive corporations are suddenly scared of dumb leftist tropes that have been swirling the bowels of the Internet for ages. But they are. They're scared of the fat comic book guy from The Simpsons. And then just typing away at his computer, criticizing, criticizing, criticizing. And you will know for certain if and when anyone in the league has the stones to stand up against like Planned Parenthood or wear MAGA gear or dare say free Hong Kong. They won't. That's not going to happen. Why? Because they're not about social justice. They're about self-preservation. Plain and simple. And for whatever reason, they didn't see the brilliance of my game back in the day and did not allow me to enter the NBA, where I would have been a Hall of Famer by now. I don't hold it against you, NBA. Okay, You just didn't see what I had at that time, nor did anyone else at any level. Not exactly sure why that is, but I assume it's a conspiracy against me. But if I was out there... I'd have free Hong Kong on that jersey, and then I would get ejected from the league and shamed until I was never seen again in society. Back in a second. Mercury Real Estate is the name, of course, of the company behind realestateagentsitrust.com. Why is it called Mercury Real Estate? What does that have to do with realestateagentsitrust.com? I'll tell you why. It's because Glenn Beck came up with the company, and that's the name of it. He names everything Mercury. Um, and it, it goes to a, a really personal experience Glenn had trying to sell a home. He had a real estate agent. Things weren't working out well. And he said, is there, this is the biggest financial transaction I'm ever going to have in my entire life. Is there nothing that I can do to sort through real estate agents? Or do I have to take the friend of a friend of a friend? You don't. Um, that's why realestateagentsitrust.com exists. It's like they're automatically there and they're already your really smart friend who knows the actual right people to put in charge of a huge deal like you're uh, buying or selling a home. Um, when you're buying a home, you get to choose your agent through realestateagentsitrust.com. Uh, you've just partnered yourself with a great team, a team that's already screened. They already know how to do all this for you. Uh, you're not going to get you're not going to you're not going to get somebody who doesn't have the knowledge of the network and the market that you need. Realestateagentsitrust.com. The name kind of says it all. Realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. Go there now. Watching Nancy Pelosi uh, say that line about uh, the Republicans are trying to get away with murder. The murder of George Floyd. Ugh, I thought, God, it's tasteless. You know who sucks? Nancy Pelosi sucks. And I thought to myself, thank God I have a Nancy Pelosi sucks pen, which is still available and still selling like crazy. I love you people. NancyPelosiSucksPen.com. Go there, get yours before she sucks even more. <laughs> 